China's economic model uh, that it's kind of brought, you know, from the past to the present day is uh, is a very traditional one. Um, I mean, not like widespread necessarily, but one that we're very familiar with, which is a high saving, high investment economic model, um, which um, it, it certainly was during the 2000s, highly dependent and driven by uh, exports. China's rise to global superpower once looked completely unstoppable. But after decades of extraordinary levels of economic growth, the narrative is beginning to disappear. China is facing quite extraordinary headwinds from growing geostrategic and trade tensions, authoritarian leadership, and an aging population. Now the collapse of Evergrade, the large-scale debt-driven property developer, has sent shockwaves through the Chinese and global economy. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash, and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to tackle a key global issue. Today's question, is China in jeopardy? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by George Magnus, who's an associate with the China Center at the University of Oxford, a former chief economist with UBS, as well as the author of Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. He's also a regular commentator across a wide variety of publications. Welcome to the podcast, George. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks very much for having me. So before we get into a bit of the longer term picture, um, I'm interested to get your thoughts on, I suppose, what the current economic crisis uh, facing China is. Um, it seems like things that were meant to be going quite well post-COVID uh, as a sign of success has really taken a, a negative turn. Yes, I think the the immediate problem or proximate problem, I think, in China, which has occupied a lot of thinkers and media uh, sources over the summer, is just that the expected bounce back from the abandonment of zero COVID at the end of 2022 um, just didn't really materialize. I mean, there was a bit of a flurry of uh, consumer spending in the early part of this year as people were allowed to congregate again and use transportation and get out of their residential compounds and so on. Um, but um, it really didn't extend to consumer durables like um, housing, automobiles and so on. Um, and um, and after sort of February, March, just things just got worse actually. And uh, I mean, it's not like the economy was in um, sort of deep contraction, although at least on official numbers, it looks like the economy was uh, stagnant for quite a few months since uh, February and March. Um, and, um, and the proximate cause of that really is the kind of the, uh, the kind of real um, dive that's taken place in the real estate market, which is now probably the first big uh, downturn in real estate. Um, We've had downturns before, but never like this um, since the what was a kind of a housing welfare market was created into or transformed into um, um, into a proper market, as we understand it. Anyway, so to put all these things together, um, so the economy was really weak in the second quarter and pretty much stagnated. Um, uh, both well, official figures show that it rose by barely 3% at an annualized rate. Private forecasters think it probably didn't even manage to do that. Um, I, I think more recently, uh, it looks like, you know, kind of the fears that China's economy was about to collapse, um, you know, proved to be rather exaggerated. Um, it's not collapsing 
Um, and there is going to be, um, and there have been already kind of stimulus measures to try to ease the pressure in the housing market. Um, so yeah, I, so it faces quite a number of headwinds, but um, you know, we are somewhere between you know, collapse and euphoria. Um, it's neither one nor the other. Uh, muddling along, perhaps. Let's let's just quickly, uh, especially briefly, get into what's been going with the housing market. So I think there's some claims that perhaps a quarter of the Chinese economy or economic growth was coming from the property sector. But that seemed to be this kind of idea of building these ghost cities of tower blocks and uh, people putting a lot of money into and, and even quite extraordinary from Western perspective, basically pre-purchasing a property, already paying mortgage repayments on an apartment you have, but that apartment not actually existing yet. Yeah, so the, the, the so-called pre-sale model uh, in the Chinese real estate market is uh, something that's um, it's quite unusual, I think, uh, for us at least. Um, so even before um, construction has started or when apartments or houses are only kind of partially um, built, I mean, you can actually contract to buy that, um, that um, unit um, and take out a mortgage on it um, and you won't be delivered until obviously the, the property is complete. So just before COVID came, so if we look at 2019, 2020, probably about 90% of real estate purchases um, in China uh, were of this nature. They were pre-sales. So as the developers, now you mentioned before Evergrande, Evergrande is just happens to be the largest private developer with the biggest liabilities, about $300 billion. Um, but there are plenty of others. Um, I mean, private developers, are in, a lot of them are in trouble. Um, <clears throat> so um, there are, there's a lot of inventory and a lot of uncompleted properties. And in fact, last year, um, there was quite an extended period of time when um, hundreds of thousands of mortgage owners actually refused to pay their mortgages on the basis that they weren't going to get delivered the properties that they contracted to buy. So um, this is something which the government has kind of acted fairly promptly to try to address, because obviously it does not want uh, a disaffected middle class, you know, for whom housing has been kind of a, a big issue and a major form of, of saving and wealth accumulation. Um, so it's been trying very, very kind of um, adroitly, really, to try to get the developers um, who, who are either bankrupt or illiquid um, to give them sufficient you know, funds, resources, uh, organisational restructuring to ensure that these properties do get delivered to, to, to citizens. So this, um, the, the problem about um, uh, in, in the real estate market, obviously, is uh, A, that um, uh, the developers are in trouble. Um, there's a lot of inventory, particularly in hundreds of towns and cities that you know, tourists who go to China never really visit or never used to visit. Um, uh, so smaller towns and cities, in, in fact. Um, and, um, and of course, there are structural kind of constraints now on the sector um, by virtue of the fact that household formation rates um, have plummeted because of the declining birth rate. So what do you think is kind of, I says, we can learn from this, I guess, current situation about the state of China's economic model? Because it, it seems to me that if, you know, China probably wants to be on the, you hear a lot about the technologies of the future, high tech, um, obviously, there's a big uh, Chinese manufacturing sector, um, but at the same time, a lot of their economy seems to be um, in this kind of 
uh, property bubble. And there's also, I, you see a lot of discussion about how little consumption there is in China compared to elsewhere in the world. China, Chinese consumers are uh, quite frugal or, uh, and the, the whole economic model is kind of built around this kind of infrastructure, property, um, and, and I suppose um, uh, pr producer-related goods. Um, whether or not that's kind of like a sustainable economic model going forward or whether there's really like deep structural issues in the economy that, that the government's going to really struggle with. Yeah. So I think there are a couple of issues here. Um, um, the first is obviously China's economic model uh, that it's kind of brought, you know, from the past to the present day is uh, is a very traditional one. Um, I mean, not like widespread necessarily, but one that we're very familiar with, which is a high saving, high investment economic model, um, which um, it, it certainly was during the 2000s, highly dependent and driven by uh, exports. But actually, after the financial crisis, um, which did touch China in a very material way, but not as the same way that uh, that we experienced it in, in the form of a banking crisis. Um, uh, but since that time, you know, that sort of tilt in the model really has been away from the export-led growth towards more uh, investment-led. And so the, the share of investment in China's economy now is about 44 or 45%. This is substantially higher than it was in the case of the so-called Asian tiger economies when they were at a similar stage of economic development um, and uh, significantly higher than it is in uh, let's say India, which is now also now viewed as you know the next sort of big emerging market power in in Asia uh, and perhaps in the world. Um, so, and a lot of the investment that has kind of fueled that boom um, during the last ten or fifteen years has been in real estate and infrastructure. A lot of it is uncommercial, debt um, driven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and we and we kind of know that. This is something not quite going right here because the um, the, in, the investment efficiency, as we measure it, um, I mean very nerdily, since I'm talking to an IEA audience. So the the incremental capital output ratio, in other words, the amount of capital you get out of amount of GDP you get out of each additional unit of investment, um, has been uh, declining uh, quite uh, steadily in recent years. Um, so this model really isn't delivering for China the kind of uh, growth rates and employment structure um, that are consistent with the aspirations which um, China has and which are uh, certainly reflective of its past performance. Um, and as you say, quite correctly, the um, you know because the investment share of GDP is so high, the consumption share of GDP is relatively low. Um, certainly low to China's peer group like Mexico, Turkey and other countries with similar income per capita. Um, so it's not necessarily that Chinese consumers are frugal. I mean, we've seen consumer spending growing in China in recent years. I mean, up until the pandemic and, and since, obviously, it's a different different matter. But before that, by about sort of seven or eight percent in per annum in real terms, which is um, which is pretty, pretty feisty. Um, but income growth has slowed down. The occupational structure of the workforce has changed, is changing more towards low pay, low skill work rather than high pay, high skill in manufacturing and construction. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that the model basically is not delivering for China anymore and it needs a makeover um, in which you have to basically redistribute income 
changed the tax system, which is very regressive, changed the system of central local government relations, which are uh, tipped very heavily towards uh, local governments, which produce or spend a lot of uh, uh, state money, uh, but the central government, which gets the lion's share of revenue and so on. So lots of things that are kind of structurally not quite working in China anymore, and which are probably contriving to drive it towards certainly now driving it towards a much more pedestrian sustainable growth rate in the future of maybe two or three percent which, um, which which would be fine in the west but by china standards it's it's I, I think it's often easy to forget that china is still significantly poorer than than western countries in, indeed I, and i would make the further point really that although two to three percent could be a very benign outcome if the quality of that growth is good it could also be a very unsatisfactory outcome if you don't make the necessary economic reforms to make it more sustainable in other words if you keep piling up debt to finance you know wasteful real estate and infrastructure investment even that two to three percent in the medium term uh, you know could end you up when with a balance sheet crisis or an economic crisis and so on which just reminds me about uh, the second point i was going to make which is of course just like Japan in the 1980s or the 1990s, there is this curious, um, you know, coexistence really of two things that are true. One is that China is certainly capable of extraordinary and has proven it's capable of extraordinary accomplishments in science, engineering, technology, and so on. But it also has a kind of a macroeconomic governance structure and economic structure um, which could end it up in a lot of trouble. And that's precisely what happened to Japan, even though there are dissimilarities between uh, the two examples. So I, I suppose um, the kind of central question at the heart of this is, is can China escape the, the middle income trap? Can it um, manage to get its economy from, it's gone from you know extreme dirt poverty, lifted hundreds of millions of people into high quality of life. Uh, and a lot of to do with that was the economic reform agenda of the reform and opening becoming a, a global, I suppose, at least to some extent, market-driven economy. What strikes me, and you identify this in red flags, is a whole bunch of reasons why that's not likely, uh, or not necessarily not likely the case, but it's going to be very difficult. Now, the, now the first one to think about, in my mind, is probably the ageing and the demographics issue. And most recently, we saw this um, when comparing the, the fact that India's population has jumped above China's, and maybe China was exaggerating their population numbers as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I to be honest with you, I don't, I don't lose a huge amount of sleep um, over you know the size of China's population in the next like ten or twenty years. I mean, certainly there are very long term projections in which uh, you know India becomes by a considerable margin uh, a much more populous country than China, and you know potentially that gives India. Um, a lot of opportunity. I mean, obviously, still has to be seized, still has to be created, but the, the raw material of high population growth and high working age population growth is, uh, you know, is generally deemed to be a positive, provided all those people can find work. So um, in the long term, that is certainly a potential problem. I think the issue for me, though, uh, really is much more about the consequences of um, or the macroeconomic consequences of aging, right? So there are there are two kinds of problems that we've got with aging societies. One is who's going to look after grandma and grandpa, which is something that 
everybody has an issue with. Yeah. Um, and this is really about the affordability of the old age care system and healthcare and so on. Uh, and China has issues with that, of course, as we all do. Um, but the other issue is, you know, what do you do to compensate for the progressive and relentless decline in the working age population because the fertility rate is so low that you can't replace um, the uh, increasing proportion of workers who are going to into retirement. And in China, people go into retirement much or get their pensions much earlier than they do in uh, a lot of other places. So uh, although they've talked about raising the eligibility rate age for a long time, you can still retire in China at 60 if you're a man and 55 or 60 if you're a woman, depending on the kind of work you were doing when you were in, in employment. Um, so uh, one of the things that most countries have done, I mean, I call them coping mechanisms, right? So one of the things that most countries have done have basically been to increase steadily the retirement age or pension eligibility age so that you can kind of keep people, older people who are typically underrepresented at work, you keep them on at work for longer um, because you can and yeah, because they course, have longevity. Of course, that's extremely politically toxic, as, as we've seen in uh, France more so recently. But even in the UK, there, there have been moves to increase the retirement age. Um, yeah. And, and it, it's understandably controversial that people feel like they've got an entitlement that they're looking forward to in five, 10 years time is, becomes 10 to 15 years time. Um, I think, though, perhaps, and in my mind, what, what is quite an interesting economic issue, particularly from, I suppose, an IEA perspective, the extent to which, and we haven't really talked about it yet, which is that President Xi's economic policy has, has appears to have meaningfully changed. You know, the, the, the China appears to have gone from this era of reform and opening um, and being, I suppose, quite open to international companies, quite open to domestic entrepreneurs, to a situation today where you have someone like Jack Ma who disappeared and then went very quiet in terms of his criticism of the Chinese government, um, where there's a lot of trade tensions over um, China's uh, position in the world. Uh, obviously, there's the geostrategic issues with Taiwan there, but more domestically, it seems like President Xi isn't going to necessarily do the kind of reforms that would enable economic growth, that they're going for a more state-driven or um, CCP-driven economy. Uh, that's unquestionably true. And um, I think most Sinologists kind of reckon, uh, recognise now that the things that Xi Jinping is really uh, interested in, really concerned about, are things like national security, stability, um, and order uh, and control, um, and not necessarily growth-oriented policies that characterize the past. Um, so kind of in a very kind of nerdy way, one of the kind of current issues of interest is, you know, why don't they stimulate the economy more? Well, they, they are going to stimulate the economy a bit in the second half of this year and, and actually have started already. Um, but they're not going to go uh, kind of full throttle to the kind of uh, reckless uh, monetary and fiscal stimulus, which kind of got them into this leverage problem in the first place. Uh, because it's on, it's destabilizing to the financial system, destabilizing for capital outflows and so on. Um, so, um, so China is very kind of conservative with the small C, both in terms of its approach to uh, macroeconomic policy, um, but also with regards to the way it sees, say, social security and welfare, um, which it doesn't see which it sees as a sort of a Western evil uh, that encourages laziness and... This and, is an intriguing fact, isn't it? That the, 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 the communist or socialist country has much less of a welfare state than the UK or France. 
it's an irony um uh, and i think you know the you, you i was going to also say because you mentioned before about the middle income trap and you know can china avoid it the big issue that you know all countries face when they grow out of poverty into this kind of middle income area is what do you do for an uncle you know once you've kind of physically exploited most of your labor and capital how do you actually sustain economic growth and smart growth in the future and of course we know the answer to that is productivity um which if it were that achievable you know nobody would have a problem so the problem with china is it's run into a kind of a big brick wall in terms of uh, productivity and I think a lot of economists think that productivity is really not so much about um, what well, isn't about how much you produce, but actually how robust your institutions are, legal institutions, uh, competition institutions, education institutions, et cetera, et cetera. How robust these institutions are in nurturing um, entrepreneurial um, capacity, know-how, innovation, and so on and so forth. And here you've got uh, kind of in China, a very marked shift under Xi Jinping away from, you know, the pre-existing kind of regime, so to speak, of, of where private entrepreneurs were kind of courted and welcomed and given pretty much free reign to a much more controlling Leninist orthodox structure of production and control and state enterprise led growth, which, um, which is going to be very difficult to dislodge. I mean, these are these are existential for Xi Jinping's China. I mean, not saying it needs to stay like this forever, um, but certainly for as long as he's in uh, in control, I don't really think this is going to change at all. And I think this is prejudicial um, to China's growth prospects and its efficiency in the future. Do you, I suppose there's a bit of debate here about whether or not, in a sense, this was always the plan, whether, whether or not the, the era, era of let's get rich has effectively come to an end. China's kind of happy with how rich it's, it's become and it's a, it only allowed the private sector to prosper in the 90s and into the 2000s, purely to just to give the um, country a bit more resources it, it could then use. And now it's the natural conclusion here, and you can trace this back to the reaction to Tiananmen Square. Uh, there, there was never an intent to liberalise. And I think this is, you know, from a free market perspective, one of the great um, disappointments of our era is, well, well, we saw this kind of trend in other parts of Asia where... Um, authoritarian countries liberalised on economics and then they eventually liberalised on politics as well. China's probably gone in the opposite direction here, where they started um, liberalising on economics. They've ne uh, never really started liberalising that much on politics and then have just gone into full-scale reverse in terms of de-liberalising de or, or increasing authoritarian control. Yeah, I mean, factually, that is a, that's exactly what has happened. I think it's kind of intriguing as to kind of why and how it happened. Um, because certainly under the previous uh, government of Hu Jintao and Wen Jibao, which is from 2002 to 2012, I mean, there wasn't a, a huge amount of reform going on during that period. There, was quite, there were quite a lot of initiatives to build out and to broaden the social security system, you know, pensions, healthcare, education, and so on, um, to a degree. Um, uh, but there was also, you know, it was also kind of fat cat times, right? A lot of people got rich. Uh, it was kind of boom time in China as it was in much of the rest of the world. Um, and um, it gave rise to um, a lot of kind of political controversy, um, which with Xi Jinping coming to power in 2012, he was determined to, to reverse. He wanted to restore party discipline. He wanted to kind of, you know, put the... Uh, 
um, the, the corruption and um, sort of bad behavior, as, as they might have called it, uh, of private sector back into some kind of order. They didn't want to kind of suppress private enterprise, but private enterprise needed to be supportive of the party and so on and so forth. But I think that whilst that happened, um, whilst that was certainly of the political agenda, it's also true that as the, eco the economic model started to falter after the financial crisis in 2008-2009, the more the economy or that model started to falter, the more repressive politics became. So that's uh, sort of a, a self-feeding loop, really, between repression and faltering economic performance, um, which has kind of brought us to where we are today. It seems to me in, in the longer run that the biggest, I suppose, um, economic effect from China on the global economy could, could very well be the potential for some kind of conflict. I, I, I know not necessarily your area of expertise. You're probably more focused on the direct economics here. But I think we're already seeing a bit of impact from China even today in their current policies on the global economy. It, it seems like it's such a substantial part of it that if China slows down, the rest of the world will slow down. There's efforts towards decoupling from China I think that's probably increasing costs. And we saw that era, era of very low in, global low inflation. Now, I think one of the theories, the reason why we saw that era of low inflation was because China was exporting relatively cheap goods to the world um, and that, that kept prices down. Now, the extent to which we're seeing a, a reversal of that and a, a, I suppose a, a deglobalization uh, to some extent or, or re restructuring of supply chains. Um, how, how do you think the rest of the world is going to end up feeling as a result? Well, um, I think it's, it's inevitable that you know we we are moving into we are in a, a world which is going to be you know less efficient and more uh, costly than the one that we kind of left really and that's that's bound to happen uh, if you start introducing as both sides have done you know export controls or barriers to free exchange of commerce and trade. I mean today you know there's sort of a news story about um, uh, Chinese government banning Apple phones in government offices. We've done the same, or some Western countries have done the same with Huawei phones and so on. So this kind of tit for tat um, um, uh, uh, sort of- Low-level economic war. <laughs> yeah, economic war. And, and basically um, the sort of emphasis that, that both the kind of liberal leaning democracies and China are placing on national security and, that sort of broader encompassing of national security to include technology and commerce and um, anything that could have military applications, which is a lot of things, including climate modeling um, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that um, I, I don't think this is going to change, really. Um, now, whether that means and I think it probably does mean that this creates um, higher cost structures in the future, particularly as supply chains are recalibrated. Um, I mean, I don't think, you know, this is something which is going to happen in a moment, um, but we certainly have seen and have started to see examples of firms uh, diversifying their supply chains to non-China countries in Asia, but also to Mexico and Turkey and places that are closer to home. Some of it is enabled by technology, 3D manufacturing, uh, you know, climate change considerations about you know, shipping goods across the world and so on. Um, and some of it obviously is, is political. Um, so yeah, I think this is a, this is a world in which you know, costs are going to have a bid that they didn't have before. Yeah, it seems like a quite fundamental shift. I, I was wondering, uh, just as uh, I suppose some concluding 
thoughts in terms of um, you wrote your kind of red flags book back in, in 2018, which I think was, was quite enlightening. And it, it came, I suppose, before a lot of these issues were identified. When there's anything in there that um, you think what we've learned since, were there things that you didn't necessarily get right or different things that have now changed that are worth emphasizing a bit more about the, the long-term trajectory of China? Yeah, a couple of things, I think, which I kind of probably didn't have um, uh, sufficiently sort of lasered eyes on. Um, uh, and, and it wasn't as relevant then, but, I mean, not as kind of prominent, I should say, as it has become. The, the first is this kind of very, very sharp focus that we all have now on national security and DIY, basically, right? So, you know, Bidenomics is really about doing more for uh, uh, on climate change and chips and semiconductors at home or in friendly countries, right? So cutting China out of the geography of supply chains in the future. But China is much the same in terms of um, trying to articulate and implement its own policies of self-reliance. So this, this drive to separate in terms of not just trade, but FDI, foreign direct investment, standards, protocols, technology, and so on, I think is something that has um, gathered quite a lot of momentum since 2018-19. The other thing is the, the governance structure in China, which I kind of thought was changing when I wrote the book. Uh, I mean, we, there were already very strong telltale signs. Uh, but I think the, the degree to which um, the Communist Party under Xi Jinping has has moved to basically bring the private sector and entrepreneurs to heel uh, is something that I would probably make you know a bigger deal about if I was writing about it now and do, but obviously not in that book. Um, but I think that's um, that's really it's quite interesting because this year there's been a bit of a charm offensive waged by the government to try to uh, persuade private firms and entrepreneurs that you know you're really on our side, we're on your side, we all want to work together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I don't think it really changes the direction that the party has taken, which is to marginalise the private sector um, and to, to allow it to make money, provided it conforms to the party's goals and aspirations. So we might call that, you know, taking them over from the inside. Well, indeed, you know, all Chinese companies are required by national security laws to do what they're told by the CCP and contain party units within them. So, I mean, it, it seems like the entire industrial or market structure is has to be interconnected to, to government. Yeah. Um, and I think that's obviously something that, uh, you know, I think we all have to be conscious of in Britain and elsewhere as well, which is uh, and, and it, it it does risk a bit of um, sort of going over the top, because, I mean, I don't I mean, unless we end up actually having an outright conflict with China, which I think we all think hopefully will be avoided. Um, but we do have to be careful and cautious about you know, where our red lines are in terms of technology transfer and, you know, commercial exchange and so on, um, because we simply don't know what state actors or state or private actors that could be co-opted by the state in China would do with, you know, the informational technology that we provide. On the other hand, though, you probably don't want to completely, you know, disassociate and, and uh, practically impossible, I suppose, for so many companies. You know, if, if you're buying toys, for example, there's no reason not to buy them from China if, if they're producing a quality product at a low price. If, if yeah. there's no national security implications, you've got to distinguish there. Of course. I mean, it, it's very much horses for courses. And I, I mean, I don't think, you know, there isn't a case for saying that all, you know, all all trade is, is bad. I mean, if you're selling luxury goods, handbags, you know, 
cars to you know uh, Chinese consumers. Cars is probably going the other way now in terms of electric vehicles. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of goods and services which can be provided in a you know which which don't have any national security implications whatsoever. Equally, there are many that are you know that do have it, and and some that are probably on the cusp. Well, George Magnus, thank you so much for joining the IEA podcast. For those who are interested in, in learning more, you've written obviously quite extensive in, in recent months about the current state of the Chinese economy as well as your book, Red Flags, which gives a bit of the longer view. Um, if you are enjoying uh, this podcast, please do subscribe in your chosen podcast provider or to learn more about the IEA, just visit iea.org.uk.